Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Henry County, Virginia. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Michael Short, a.k.a. Mike, was known for being a happy-go-lucky guy who was known for pulling epic pranks on his sister. He was the kind of guy that you could always count on to liven up the place and was always up for a good time. Throughout the 70s and early 80s, Mike got married a few times, and while none of those relationships panned out, they did lead to the birth of his three children, which were all boys. Mike hadn't exactly been lucky in love, but in the late 80s, he got married a fourth and final time to a woman named Mary Hall. There was something different about Mary. She was sweet and kind down to her bones, and she seemed to have a settling effect on Mike's life. According to Mike's sister, the couple tended to keep to themselves, but they seemed really happy. Fast forward a few years later to July 12, 1993, and Mike and Mary welcomed their first child together. This might have been Mike's fourth child, but it had finally happened. He had his first daughter, a beautiful baby girl that they named Jennifer Renee. Jennifer was sweet, just like her mom, and attached to her parents at the hip. One teacher told the Greensboro News and Record, She would come up to you and wait to be noticed, but when you'd notice her, she'd give you that shy smile that would melt your heart. The next thing you knew, she wanted a hug. With a baby in tow, the Short family settled into a tiny little brick rancher in Bassett, Virginia. Bassett is a tiny little micro town in the southwest portion of the state. It covers a whopping three and a half square miles with a staggering population of around 1,100 people. If you live in Bassett, you're living there for the peace and quiet, and that's pretty much it, maybe some fishing. The home the Shorts lived in wasn't in your typical suburban neighborhood. It was actually placed right off of US 220, which was a well-traveled four-lane highway. You would literally just pull off of the highway into their driveway. At the time, their closest neighbor was about 100 yards away, but because of the proximity to the highway, there were several businesses that were much closer, like a Circle convenience store and a hotel. There was also a flea market and a junkyard across the other side of the highway. Those who knew the Short family remember them being together all the time, often seeing them spending time together in their yard with Jennifer dancing around or playing with her Barbies. Together, Mike and Mary owned M&S Mobile Home Movers, which was a mobile home business. Initially, it was very successful, but by early 2002, business had slowed down quite a bit and the change in business had them contemplating a move, to South Carolina specifically. During the spring and summer of that year, Mike looked for job opportunities in Bennettsville, Florence, Conway, and Myrtle Beach. They had high hopes for the summer that maybe business would turn around, but by early August, things weren't looking good, so the Shorts decided to sell their house and temporarily move into one of the mobile homes that Mike already owned. It wasn't ideal, but despite everything they were going through, little Jennifer was their number one priority. They made sure that even though they were having a hard time even getting by, that nothing changed for their daughter. That summer, she played on the local baseball team as the only girl, and she was amazing. Jennifer was set to start her first day of fourth grade on August 26, 2002, but she never got the chance. 
Just before 9 a.m. on August 15th, one of Mike's employees named Chris showed up at the Shorts' home to help with some work, and he never could have prepared himself for what he saw. As he entered the garage, he found 50-year-old Mike laying dead on the couch. He would often lie there at night and watch TV before going to bed, but Mike had been shot once in the head, execution style. There was a single spent 22 caliber shell casing laying right next to his body. The employee was horrified, so he went to check on everyone else, but the entire home was a nightmare. 36-year-old Mary was also found dead. She was lying in bed with a gunshot wound to her head, and just like with Mike, there was a shell casing next to her body. There was some hope in this world that maybe nine-year-old Jennifer would be found alive, but she wasn't found at all. Fox 8 reported that the sheets on her bed were pulled back, her pillow was on the floor, and her mattress was moved about two inches, but other than that, there was no sign of her anywhere or any sign of what might have happened to her. There was no blood, no shell casing, nothing. According to the Greensboro News and Record, at first, police thought that Jennifer might have run away and hid during the shootings, but as time passed and she still wasn't found, it became clear to them that she had likely been abducted. With that, an Amber Alert was pushed out and a massive search effort ensued, and I am talking massive. County, state, and federal agencies were all out looking for this little girl whose parents had just been murdered. One of the biggest obstacles, though, was the fact that Jennifer could have been anywhere. They live so close to the highway, literally right off of it, that the killer-slash-abductor could have hopped right on to US-220 and traveled to literally anywhere in the state, let alone the country. The second hurdle was trying to figure out how long Jennifer had been missing. If Mike and Mary had been killed in a neighborhood, there's a good chance someone would have heard the shots that killed them, but the sounds of a four-lane highway could easily mask the noise, and people aren't generally checking out the buildings on the side of the road when they're going 55 miles an hour. We could deduce that they were likely killed after bedtime, since we know Mary was in bed and Mike was on the couch watching his nightly TV shows, but that leaves a pretty significant gap of time in which all of this could have happened. If Mary went to bed at, say, 9 p.m., we're talking about a 12-hour gap in time here. If someone was driving from the Shorts home in Bassett, they could have gotten as far as Chicago in that amount of time. In the first 24 hours following the murders and abduction, multiple agencies and more than 200 volunteers scoured the area around the short home. Thanks to Google Earth being absolutely amazing, we can go back and see what the area looked like back then, and it would have been a lot to search. Sure, there were a few businesses around, but other than that, they would have either been sifting through dense woods or sprawling fields. Law enforcement utilized everything they could get their hands on, helicopters, dogs, and four-wheel drive vehicles. But no matter how hard they searched, Jennifer just was not there. Not even a hint of her, not a shoe, not a hair tie, nothing. 
While countless people were out searching outside, investigators were processing every inch of the Shorts' home. Every available surface, even the walls, was fingerprinted, and police actually wound up spending more than two weeks at that scene, gathering over a thousand pieces of evidence, which did include DNA samples. No murder weapon was found, but they did find $600 in cash and blank checks. If this didn't seem like a personal attack before, it certainly did now. Whoever came into that house wasn't looking for money. They were looking to kill Mike and Mary. But why? Were they after Jennifer all along? If they didn't want to kill her, they could have left her there, but they didn't. Were they someone that Jennifer would have recognized? At this point, there were more questions than answers. Investigators looked for any signs of a struggle in the house, but didn't find any. One officer told Fox 8, The house was up for sale and it looked like a showplace. You could have put it in a magazine. There was nothing out of place inside that house. Depending on whether or not they locked the doors, this could either mean that someone knew they could gain access to the home or Mike and Mary were killed in their sleep. We kind of gathered that by where the bodies were found, but this person would have had to have been extremely quiet to get as close as they did without neither Mike nor Mary waking up. The more they looked at this scene, the more planned this entire crime seemed to be. Investigators found that the phone line to the house had been intentionally cut, so whoever did this did plan for things going wrong. If the shorts happened to wake up, they made sure that they wouldn't have been able to call for help. It seemed like the killer knew too much about the home, where the phone line was, where to find Mike, and where to find Mary, so it seemed like whoever did this knew the family and had likely been to the house before. Knowing the bodies were found by Chris, someone who worked with Mike, authorities interviewed him extensively and he was as cooperative as they could come. Chris told police that on the evening of August 14th, he and Mike worked on a truck at the house from around 7 p.m. to midnight. So the timeline starts to exist there. If Mike was alive at midnight, there was a nine-hour gap between then and when his body was found. After Mike and Chris finished up for the night, Chris went to a nearby hotel he was staying at, and he didn't return to the short home until the following morning. Chris was never named a suspect or a person of interest in these murders. It was time to try and figure out who might want to hurt Mike, so police focused on his business and whether or not any potential home buyers had visited the property recently, but as far as I can tell, nothing ever really came of that. Law enforcement also looked into someone who'd harassed Mary back when she worked at the Pluma Textile Plant in Bulls Industrial Park. The Greensboro News and Record reported that back in 1992 or 1993, a white man who was not an employee showed up and demanded to talk to Mary. He was actually so angry that he had to be forcibly removed by other employees. To this day, no one seems to know who the man was or why he was so upset. But it was such an isolated event that even Mary's co-workers had a hard time remembering what year it even happened. All police ever said in regards to it was that Mary didn't seek a protective order after it happened, and it was possible the man drove a white pickup. On August 16th, so the day after Mary and Mike were killed, law enforcement gave a pretty shitty update and at no fault of their own. Regardless of their efforts, they had no leads on suspects, motives, or any details about a possible getaway vehicle. 
All they could say was that they were actively looking for Jennifer, who they believed had been forcibly and swiftly removed from her bed. And actively looking for Jennifer may actually be the understatement of the century. They were desperate to find her as if she was one of their own children. One captain said, With every hour that goes by, I'm afraid the situation will get even more drastic. The captain then addressed the abductor directly and said, If you have this young child, please do the right thing and release Jennifer in a public area and in some way notify law enforcement so we can find her. Getting her back was priority number one and they could worry about the investigation into who had released her later. Within 48 hours, on August 17th, Jennifer's disappearance made it to national TV and was featured on America's Most Wanted. We've seen that bring in some really incredible tips in other cases, but when it comes to Jennifer, that just didn't happen. No promising leads came from her segment, and over the next three days, police went over and over everything they had found in that house, hoping that maybe they had missed something, maybe there was something they weren't seeing that could point them in some kind of direction. On August 23rd, Mary and Mike's funeral was held, and according to Fox 8, investigators set up cameras and filmed the service to keep an eye out for any red flags or odd behavior. This was a very small town, and it seemed like whoever killed them may have known them, but the video from the service didn't get them any closer to finding their killer or Jennifer. All they knew for certain at this point was that the Short family was deeply loved and their deaths were rocking this close-knit community. There was this deep hope that against all odds, Jennifer would be found, so that's what the town of Bassett decided to focus on. Jennifer's teachers set up her desk at school, truly hoping that she would be there on the first day. A court also ruled that Jennifer's aunt and uncle could become her official guardians if and when she was located. If Jennifer was found, that entire town made sure that she would have anything and everything she needed. On September 4th, something unusual happened. Mike's body was exhumed for more testing, which fueled a crazy rumor that had been spreading around town. According to CNN, people had been saying that Mike might not be Jennifer's real father. That rumor gained so much traction that even though that wasn't why his body was exhumed, police decided to run a DNA test anyway. The real reason for the exhumation was to collect hair samples that the medical examiner's office had forgotten to take. That's kind of a big whoops if it means a person has to be exhumed, but it doesn't look like anyone was overly upset about it. They were just really grateful that law enforcement was still this invested in finding out who was responsible. By the time police filled the public in on why Mike's body was exhumed, they also stated that the DNA results were already in. What came next certainly did not help any speculation. Law enforcement stated that they knew the truth and that it was important to the investigation, but never shared what that truth was, at least not yet. Along with the exhumation update, police were pretty transparent in saying that they were struggling, that they didn't have many strong leads or evidence pointing to a suspect. 
They theorized that whoever killed the shorts and abducted Jennifer was organized and careful. According to Fox 8, they tried their hand at getting a criminal profile drawn up, but it didn't really help. One officer said, the profile that we got was very, very general, and they couldn't pin it down anymore because this was the only case like it at the time. Either way here, you definitely can't say that they were not trying. The search for Jennifer continued throughout most of September. Then, on the 25th, police were called to a man named Eddie's house, which was located near Stoneville, North Carolina, on a countryside property about 30 miles away from the short home. If you look at Stoneville on the map, you would basically take 220, the highway the shorts lived off of, south, and within 30 minutes or so, you're there. According to the Washington Post, Two days earlier, Eddie had found his dogs playing with what looked like an old wig. He took the wig from the dogs and threw it away, thinking nothing of it. But two days later, Eddie found his dogs playing with what looked like a turtle shell. However, when he picked it up, he realized it was a human skull with a bullet hole in it. He contacted the sheriff's department immediately. Law enforcement conducted a search of the area and found more skeletal remains, most of which were scattered under a nearby bridge. Alongside the skull, investigators found leg bones, a part of a jaw, a rib cage, bone fragments, 16 teeth, and a full head of hair. Unfortunately, with as much as they did find, it was still only about a quarter of the remains. Naturally, everyone wondered if maybe these were Jennifer's remains, but on September 26th, the police made a statement that they didn't believe the remains were hers. They couldn't know for sure until the medical examiner's office ran a DNA test, but there are cursory ways to try and assess likelihood, like the amount of teeth and the size of the bones. We know that Jennifer was only nine years old when she was abducted, and up until this point, no one had heard the man say that he found small bones, just bones. If the bones weren't Jennifer's, there was still hope that she was out there somewhere and one day she'd be back in school at the desk her teachers had waiting for her. But that hope was crushed just a few days later. On October 4th, results determined that the remains found in North Carolina did in fact belong to Jennifer Short. Due to the lack of remains, the only thing the medical examiner was able to conclude was that just like her mother and father, Jennifer had been shot in the head. Whoever killed her was an absolute fucking monster who needed to be stopped. After Jennifer's body was found, the Henry County Sheriff, that's the county Bassett is in, said he wanted to address the rumor that Mike was not Jennifer's biological father. The sheriff said in no uncertain terms that Mike was, in fact, Jennifer's dad. He added, I want to also apologize to the families, the Short family and Mary Short's extended family, for not being able to clarify this earlier. I was afraid to tell you for the simple reason that if the biological father had Jennifer, we were afraid he would dispose of her, or if someone thought he was the biological father, which is just as important. We never at any time anywhere discovered any information that Mary Short was anything other than a lady and a model mother for her child. By the same token, we never discovered any information anywhere that would lead us to believe that Mike Short was anything other than a loving father to his child. I just want to make that plain for everyone and particularly the family. We did what we did. I would risk anything to save a little girl's life, but she's gone now and she's safe now. No evil can befall here, so that needs to be said. 
It's a bit of a hard pill to swallow knowing the pain these rumors caused, but if the police department had even an ounce of suspicion that someone had abducted Jennifer because, for whatever reason, they thought they were her biological father, I can absolutely see why law enforcement did this. So this is a really good example of how sometimes police say or do things that make no sense to us, and it's only because we don't have the full picture. They were definitely Team Jennifer in the situation. It just sucks. On October 8th, Jennifer's remains were released to her family. Later, the bridge where she was recovered was named the Jennifer Renee Short Memorial Bridge. And I want to talk about this bridge for a second. We talked about how taking Highway 220 South will get you to Stoneville, but to get to this bridge, you have to pull off onto River Road and head east and then take a left on Grogan Road. There is absolutely nothing significant about this area. There's woods on either side of the road and it's driving away from civilization. Assuming that's the path the killer took, they'd have hit a country club if they kept going straight on River Road, but they took that left instead. The bridge she was found under wasn't some noticeable bridge. It was the kind of short bridge that might cover a creek and one that you probably wouldn't ever notice unless you drove over it all the time. All of this is to say that it kind of seems like whoever left her there was probably very familiar with the area. At around the same time Jennifer's body was found, law enforcement was investigating a 66-year-old man named Garrison Gary Bowman. Fox 8 reports that he was a carpenter from Madison, North Carolina, but when I ran my own report, he definitely had some close ties to the area. Gary had come onto police radar early in the investigation because according to the Washington Post, three days after the murders, a local landlord went to police to tell them about Gary and some suspicious things that had happened. The landlord claimed that two days before the murders, Gary told him that he had paid a man in Virginia to move his mobile home. Gary warned that if the man didn't move it or return his money, he would have to kill him. The landlord also told police that he saw Gary putting a false door in his van and drilling holes in the side of a compartment. He also found a map in Gary's home with an X marking the short home. That's certainly some extremely specific information that does line up with Mike's business and a potentially organized criminal, but there's more. The landlord said that on August 15th, the day of the murders, Gary approached the landlord with a pistol. What that interaction entailed, I do not know, but by the next day, Gary was gone and his trailer had been moved. Just to make sure the landlord wasn't making all of this up, police asked him to take a polygraph and he passed. It was officially time to dig in deep into Gary and almost immediately, law enforcement learned that he had left for Yellowknife, Canada the day after Mike and Mary were killed and Jennifer was abducted. They also discovered that he had rented a mobile home just about a mile from where Jennifer's remains were found. That proximity is kind of important considering how obscure this area kind of is. And remember that that bridge isn't something that anyone's going to stop on or have any reason to remember. It's the kind of bridge that you drive over without even realizing it was there. Police in Virginia eventually contacted Canadian authorities to fill them in on their investigation. At first, Virginia police wanted to travel to Canada and question Gary, 
But Canadian officials learned that Gary had violated immigration laws when he entered their country without disclosing his previous DUI convictions. This saved the travel budget and Canada deported Gary and sent him off to Virginia, where he was detained under a federal material witness warrant and a judge ruled that he couldn't be released until he testified in front of a grand jury. That is a whole lot of information, so let's break that down real quick. Apparently, you can't just willy-nilly waltz into Canada if you have previous DUI convictions. You have to plan in advance and apply for a temporary resident permit. If you fail to disclose your DUI, they can boot you and even ban you from entering the country for several years. Canada did not want Gary, so they sent him back, but not back home. They sent him to Virginia because he had a federal material witness warrant. It didn't even occur to me that this could qualify for a federal case, and it absolutely could since the murders of one family crossed state lines. Three people in one house in Virginia, two people killed there, and one family member found in a neighboring state. Applause to every single agency involved in this case because they were using every resource available to try and solve it. As for the federal material witness warrant, those are a little controversial. Generally, a person only risks arrest and detention if they commit a crime, but these warrants allow the arrest and detention of someone whose testimony is quote-unquote material in a criminal proceeding, and it's been shown that the person will be hard to get to court if not detained. I would love to see the probable cause statement that secured this warrant and how they got it for him as a witness. He was expected to stay in detention until he testified before a grand jury, so what was he supposed to testify about? With Gary in custody, investigators finally got a chance to interview him. He denied any involvement in the Short family murders and explained that the X on the map might have been marked by his ex-wife to indicate the location of an antique stealer. As absurd as that may sound on our end, investigators said that they found Gary to be very helpful and that he answered their questions without a lawyer present. That's a weird compliment because honestly, you should always have a lawyer present, innocent or not. It certainly seemed, however, like Gary might be heading off of police radar, but in mid-October, law enforcement told the public about him, including their suspicions. They were careful not to publicly name Gary a suspect and instead referenced him as a person of interest or material witness, though court documents refer to him as a potential suspect. While a lot of people immediately believed that Gary was guilty, his friends disagreed. One told the Associated Press that he had spent the day before the murders with Gary, and Gary had spent the day drinking beer, something he did often, and was ready to sleep by late afternoon when the friend left. I'm not totally sure how that makes him less suspicious, but let's keep going. Another friend told the Greensboro News and Record, everything's gotten turned around and it makes Gary look bad. The friend said that they were with Gary on the same day the shorts were murdered and he didn't see anything weird. He clarified that Gary's decision to move to Canada was not an attempt to escape arrest that he'd been planning to move for years. Months earlier, Gary had approached the friend and said that he was going to move soon, which is vague at best. He'd apparently even asked if he could store his mobile home on the friend's property. But for such a big move to Canada, he certainly didn't seem to know much about the requirements to visit, let alone live there. 
In late October, Gary was released from custody after authorities dismissed the federal material witness warrant. He'd remain free until his appearance before the grand jury, which was scheduled for a few weeks later. The grand jury was held in November, and they did not return an indictment, so Gary stayed a free man. Despite the lack of charges, police did keep an eye on him and continued calling him a person of interest. By 2003, progress in the short case had slowed down to almost a halt. In September, Jennifer's remains were exhumed, like her father's, for forensic purposes, but that's all anyone was told. It's not a lot, but it is something. Following that, a task force was formed, which consisted of investigators from the Henry County Sheriff's Office, the FBI, the ATF, state police, and more. During their investigation, they interviewed two men who had information about the case. Those two men were Timothy Sampson and Jerry Mills. According to WFMY, Tim and Jerry told police that they were in Bassett, Virginia on the night of the murders. They claimed to have been looking for a place to burgle when they heard two gunshots coming from inside the short home. What a criminal fucking coincidence while potentially rolling 55 miles an hour down the highway looking to steal shit and just so happened to hear two gunshots coming from the only home within 100 yards. Got it. Following the shots, they said they saw a person who looked like Abraham Lincoln exiting the short home carrying a lifeless girl in a nightgown. Tim and Jerry later identified Mr. Abe Lincoln as being Gary Bowman. And I mean, he does kind of look like Abraham Lincoln, but where were they where they could take note of any of his distinctive features along the highway? Detectives spent several days interviewing Tim and Jerry, and as their story started to unravel, Tim took some pretty drastic measures and pressured his adult daughter to give false testimony to a grand jury in support of his version of events. According to WFMY, he even went so far as to threaten the lives of two police officers. Over time, investigators did piece together that Tim and Jerry were full of shit and they were just trying to claim the reward money. Because of that, though, the task force had wasted roughly a year of time and resources investigating Tim and Jerry's claims, which were based on nothing. They were absolutely pissed, and rightfully so, so in March of 2005, both men learned the definition of fuck around and find out. They were both charged with conspiracy, perjury, and providing false information to law enforcement. Tim specifically was also charged with obstructing justice for threatening to kill those two officers and for forcing a witness to lie to a grand jury. A third man was even charged. He was named Tony Epperson, and he had also met with investigators about what he had seen on the night of the murders, and he too was caught lying and charged accordingly. People suck sometimes. Don't do this. The task force continued their investigation into the Short family murders, but in November of 2006, they were met with a massive obstacle when the Henry County Sheriff's Department was outed for corruption. As it turns out, Henry County Sheriff Castle, who had been actively discussing the Short family murders with the media and the public since the very beginning, along with 12 of his deputies, had been selling crack, marijuana, and ketamine since the late 90s. Damn it, you guys. According to ABC News, Castle and his deputies had been taking drugs that were seized as evidence, creating fake orders for the drugs to be destroyed, then selling them. 
Ultimately, Castle and most of his deputies pled guilty, and Castle was given a whopping eight-month sentence for his role, but the whole-ass sheriff was going to jail with all of the people he had put in jail. The Roanoke Times reported that the corruption case naturally raised concerns about potential interference with the short murder case. Some even speculated that the two cases might be involved, but I don't really see how because nothing about the short family murders seems to be linked to drugs. FBI officials eventually did chime in and say that there was no link between the cases and the shady activities within the sheriff's department did not significantly impact the short investigation. Despite all of that, the task force did remain intact and they continued their investigation. In 2007, they made a pretty bold statement when they announced that Gary Bowman was no longer a suspect. Instead, they were going to concentrate on a few other people who are persons of interest, but they didn't give any names. In 2009, the task force shared information about a suspicious vehicle and its occupant that had been seen in the early morning hours of August 15th, the same day the family was found murdered. Investigators explained that an unknown man was spotted sitting in a vehicle along Highway 220 near the short home. The man appeared to be in his 40s and had what they referred to as a weathered complexion. A drawing of the man was distributed to the public, and he looks like your everyday guy. He has long features, so he might be tall, but it's really hard to tell since he was seen sitting in a truck. He was wearing a baseball hat, had a strong chin, and eyes that look like they're always asking a question. The vehicle was described as a white truck made between 1998 and 2002. It was a single cab, two-ton flatbed, stake body truck with wooden rails. A sketch of the truck was also released, and investigators asked for any and all information about the truck or the person inside. Despite the release of new information, though, the case continued to stall. In 2015, investigators stated that they thought the motive for the murders may have simply been the abduction of Jennifer. But if that's the case, why did they kill her? With that theory in mind, law enforcement asked her friends, including the ones from her sports teams, to go back in their memory to 2002 and try and see if they could recall anyone strange in Jennifer's life. They were specifically interested in talking to anyone who had contact with Jennifer between June and August of 2002. The investigators were also interested in people who had interacted with Mike and Mary or their business between January of 2001 and, of course, August of 2002. As much as I hate to say this, the investigation continued to sit at a standstill. Then, on February 20th of 2019, the short family home, which had been vacant since they were killed, burned down. Investigators couldn't determine what caused the fire, but they also didn't think it was linked to the murders. That house had been processed from top to bottom. I don't think anyone would assume they were getting rid of evidence by burning it down. But I also can't imagine how it would have ever caught fire, unless maybe someone had been squatting in it, but we really just don't know. 
More than three years later, in June of 2022, a brand new task force was formed and began working on the Shorts case. Investigators said they had always felt like there were a couple of key people that were withholding information, and because of that, investigators re-interviewed people to see if they were more willing to cooperate now. Investigators have stated that there are specific people they're focusing on, and while they haven't been able to name any names, they did say that certain leads had guided them towards these exact people. August of 2022 brought the 20th anniversary of the Short family murders. Investigators spoke to ABC8 and said that while there were no new developments, experts had planned to re-examine evidence. While that's as promising as it can get right now, that is unfortunately the last update we have in this case. The murders of Mike, Mary, and Jennifer Short are still unsolved. If you have any information about this investigation, please call the Henry County Sheriff's Office at 276-638-8751 or Crime Stoppers at 63CRIME, which is also 632-7463. There is a $62,500 reward available. For photos pertaining to this case, check out the Short Family highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there today at noon Eastern, where we go live and talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just two whole dollars a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 